Hello. Before we get down to cinema, I would like to draw your attention to our Patreon. Regular listeners will know that these podcasts are supported by Quad, our home cinema in Derby, UK. But as Quad is a charity, we want to make Cinelet as self-sustainable as possible. So, to that end, we have set up a two-tier way in which you can support Cinelit. For our 35mm Cinefans, you'll get a bonus additional episode each month where we will be deep diving into an area of cinema that will be exclusive to Patreon subscribers for at least six months before it arrives like a late dinner guest on the regular feed. Plus, you get the episodes a week in advance of the main feed release. But if you want to support us and don't feel that pressing need to have the additional podcast each month, but still want that warm, satisfying feeling of being part of the Cinelit success story then you can become an 8mm Cinefan, where you can donate and get our heartfelt thanks. Head over to the Patreon page and subscribe if you can. However, we know that times are hard at the moment, so please do not feel you need to subscribe if you are not able. We'll still be putting out new, free-to-listen-to episodes on a regular basis throughout the year. Now let's get back to your regular scheduled broadcast. Welcome to Cinelit. Today we are returning to the world of crime cinema to look at a run of six films by Italian director Sergio Martino. From 1971 to 1975, Sergio directed a handful of the key films in the Jali genre. As we are, as we've explained before our Dario Argento podcast, a Jallo is a particular brand of crime mystery thriller that derives its name from the long-running series of paperback fictions released by Italian publishing giant Mondadari. These books, printed in garish yellow covers, were soon nicknamed Giallo, Italian for yellow, and the rest is history. And then in the late 1960s, when filmmakers began adapting some of these books for the big screen, the term transferred over to cinema. Probably one of the three or four key names in the subgenre, Sergio Martino, had a run and left behind some of the timeless examples of the genre, and arguably had a run of quality comparable to the greats of the genre like Mario Bava and Dario Argento. I am your host, Adam Marsh, and donning the black gloves to join us today is Cinelix resident expert, Daryl Buxton. How are you, Daryl? I'm good, thanks, Adam. Looking forward to talking about Sergio. I think he's a bit of a, a sort of underrated and under-discussed figure, and this little batch of films which forms a particular little knot within his career, is especially interesting. And again, joining us today to discuss this particularly interesting period of Martino's career is the creator of the British fanzine Jallo Pages, John Martin. How are you? Buongiorno. Bene, bene. <laughs> Very good. That's about all the Italian you're going to get today, <laughs> other than maybe us butchering some of the titles. Um, <laughs> that's what we do here. We don't butcher on the film, we butcher titles. Um, so yeah, so here we're talking about Sergio Martino. Um, started making his movies in the wake of the big, big boom of, uh, of Jallo uh, after Dario Argento released Berber the Crystal Plumage, which really gave the genre a massive box office hit, really. I was trying to think about why, why we, how we separate him from Barva and we separate him from Argento. And the lyrics to When Smokey Sings by ABC popped into my head where they talked about, like, this person's the originator, this person's the innovator. And Sergio, for me, is the Smokey Robinson <laughs> of, 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 <laughs> of Shallow. He, he didn't originate the genre. He wasn't the innovator that Argento was. But there's something about his films that's maybe the heart of, of the genre. Tell me if I'm wrong, gay guys. When, when he directs, we see violence. Exactly. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> <laughs> but he was he was he was a hack director in the best possible use of the term. You know, you, hack is often used as, as a negative. Now, I don't see it as a negative. I see it as somebody who can turn their hands to a wide variety of genres and deliver quality in that within those constraints and he seemed to be that guy who you, you want you wanted a giallo he'd do you a giallo he wants a sex comedy he'd do you an italian sex comedy you want a post-apocalyptic sci-fi no worries sergio's your man you want an adventure set in the amazon boom yeah here he is again sergio martino 
he seemed to be able to turn his hand to lots of different genres and still deliver that high quality. Yeah, I think in this period as well, Adam, you know, sort of including and incorporating the, the Jalo titles, but the films just before and just after that, there's almost a little sort of cottage industry going on there because his, his brother Luciano is producing the films. Uh, Luciano's wife, Edwige Fenech, is, um, is the star of a lot of the films. Um, George Hilton, who was sort of related to the family by marriage, I think he was married to a cousin or something, is, is the male lead in a lot of the films. And there's this whole little tight-knit group that's making this almost like, you know, something like the carry-on films or something, <laughs> in a sense, in that there's this little band of people that get together and make it, make two films every year, you know. And um, and I think that, com- that comes through in the finished product, you know. it's uh, There is a sign that, um, you know, they're commercial and entertaining... Uh, films and films that look like everybody else's films to to a point but there is this sense of, of sort of community and fun within them you know um like you like you get in a film franchise these aren't a franchise as such but they almost play as though they are and i think if you know the background and you get to recognize the actors and you get to recognize some of the names in the credits i, I think that these films are nice to watch in a little batch together yeah, and effectively another member of the family is the writer Ernesto Castaldi, who, who wrote all of the films I think we're going to mainly talk about today. And he is a writer who was obsessed with Clouseau's Le Diabolique and working out the various permutations of who's fooling who, who's killing who, who's making love to whom. And, um, but in every film, it's different. It's, it's, it's the same, but it's different, to coin a phrase. Mm. And it's a fascinating little body of work. I find Gasaldi's input into these films fascinating because you have obviously you've got Barber who, who kickstarted the whole genre with with a handful of movies in the sixties, and then you've got Argento who increasingly seemed less interested in the plot and the mechanics of a giallo and more interested in the visuals of the giallo, and you've got Sergio Martino in the middle with almost forensic detail from Gastaldi in the the mechanics of the plot, which is one of my favourite things about giallo movies is the almost ridiculously complex, not complex, complicated plot, I guess. They're almost needlessly complicated. And that's what I love about those ones. And when people do modern versions of Jello, that's the thing that they junk junk out straight away. It's always the visuals, it's always the look of those films. It's the black love killer, it's those kind of imagery that they bring to to, to to their reinvention. I'm waiting for those ones that has that ridiculous plotting all the way through um, to be to redone. But that's what I love about these movies. Gastaldi is a real purist. He said to me that he didn't believe Argento had ever directed a giallo because he has a very strict definition mm-hmm. of what a giallo is, including playing fair with the viewer about the identity of the killer, which I think we'd all admit is not a strong point of Argento's. No, no, not at all. I mean, uh, um, it, it, it doesn't seem to interest Argento. Whereas in Martino, that's the thing he seems to focus on. And you do get great visuals. You do get the great um, sense of foreboding and the sort of like over-the-shoulder camera uh, of, the, of, the, of the killer. But you, he, he seems much more interested in, in telling that story mm. and making sure that the, the reveal at the end is satisfying for his audience. Yeah, I think one thing about Martino's films in that sense is that... Um, the, the plots actually make sense of a sort. And, and that's down to, partly down to Gastaldi's writing and partly down to the way that Martino films them. As you, you've used the word forensic there, Adam, and I think that's, that's uh, very apt because um, that, that's the way he seems to approach his filmmaking, certainly in this uh, subgenre. I, I think the, 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 the plots are so complicated that if you as a viewer take your eye off the ball... Uh, momentarily you can lose track of what's going on but if you really really concentrate on the Sergio Martino film that concentration will be rewarded by the end even if outrageous ideas are introduced quite late in the plot as they often are in Gastaldi scripts they sort of make sense they they sort of repay the committed and attentive viewer i think and martino does that probably better than any other italian director it's easy to it's easy for a director to lose their way when they're when they're making this particular type of of crime come horror thriller 
the, the scripts are often so complicated that even, even the filmmakers can sort of lose a grasp of them. And it's a thing that Martino never, never ever does. He's always in complete control, I think. Uh, although these things are often so rigidly plotted by Gastaldi, who was a real stickler for these things, um, the one film that uh, seems to me to have some element of ambivalence at the end is um, All the Colours of the Dark, where it's suggested that Edwige Schwenek is perhaps gifted with some uh, psychic, witchy powers and that this is something awakening inside her over and above any more mundane stuff people were doing to inherit money. And that ambivalence, um, it's really interesting. I can watch that again and again and again because you, characters' backs are turned to you and you can hear them speaking. It's obviously been overdubbed later. It's like they're trying to resolve this ambivalence or maybe something arose during the making of the film they wanted to fix. Um, and it even, um, you know, the, the sort of, is she, is she mad or is she, are these occult powers real? It's, it's kind of uh, suggested earlier where Fennec is such an uptight character and uh, she's so repressed and her friend says to her, hey, you could solve all your problems by going to a black mass. And she says, hey, yeah, let's do it now, which is crazy. So it doesn't quite stack up, but it's a really interesting tension and I think it uh, paves the way for something like Suspiria, which is a mixture of giallo and uh, supernatural film, you know. Yeah, I think, and I, I, think I, I, I think I think within within this body of work as well, it uh, it sort of sets as as we've said, the six films are all different from each other. Interestingly, even though they're all based on Castaldi scripts and they're all centered around the the um, the sort of giallo subgenre, you know, they're all very very different and individual from each other. Unlike some other filmmakers like Umberto Lenzi, who just seem to make the same uh, giallo time after time under different titles, you know. Um, so so if if this one does have a hint of the supernatural to it. I think that distinguishes it from the other five movies uh, in in this period. Also, um, although it's it's clearly inspired by the likes of Rosemary's Baby and this vein of uh, sort of supernatural conspiracy movie that was around at the time, um, uh, it in turn may well be a film that that has had an influence on the sort of recent run of what is termed elevated horror. I think if you look at the films of Ari Aster or even uh, Guadagnino's uh, Suspiria remake, the endings of all of those films have, have this, this type of ending. You know, they, 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 there is this suggestion that um, you know, the lead character that we've been following all the way through the film is some kind of god or goddess or something and they don't know it, you know. And I think that, that seems to sort of stem from... Um, uh, all the colours of the dark, but not but not nearly as much fun in those movies. <laughs> no, that... no, it is. It is not a lot of fun and, in the Suspiria remake. And twice the length, you know. No, not at all. No, but uh, well, what, what, what do you think the reason was for that? Because we talked about how each one is very very different, but he has come from that, like you said, a cottage industry. They're, they're making these films to make money. And usually when you have a hit, you rinse, repeat, rinse, repeat, rinse, repeat. Yet he doesn't do that, despite the reason for them setting up is the whole point is to make money. Maybe they were making so much money off the, the Italian sex comedies that they were making that they could be a bit more free and easy with these ones. I don't know. When I interviewed him, he talked about the ruthless logic of commercial production. And that was, you know, set uh, in stone. But also he said he never wanted to repeat himself... And I think one of the ones he was least happy with was the uh, case of the scorpion's tail because he felt like that was a bit of a rehash of uh, Mrs. Ward without Edwige Schwenek. And then he really set off after that and made some, uh, you know, wildly varied stuff. Yeah, I think I think Case of the Scorpion's Tail is is a great standalone film. But yeah, watched within this batch of films. It is the one that that looks the the most sort of tired and the most sort of generic, and as you say, it does sort of repeat um, uh, many elements of the plot of the Strange Vice of Mrs. Ward. But, well, they didn't uh, mess around, did they? It was released in the same calendar year yeah, as yeah, Ward, so yeah. <laughs> they weren't messing around. Yeah. They cranked <laughs> another one out, didn't they? But as you say, Adam, it's interesting that the films were so different when when they didn't they didn't have to do that. So it's obviously a conscious choice, and I I, I wonder if. John, you're, you're suggesting that maybe Martino wanted to do that, didn't want to repeat himself. 
Gastaldi was churning out the same script year after year for different directors. Maybe everything just came to a head here in 1971 and 72, and the whole little collective sort of maybe discussed between them. You can imagine them all sat around one of those great Italian tables, piled up with pasta and so on, and saying, yeah, you know, let's... Let's actually not film the scripts the same script three or four times, mm, you know, mm. and come up with a bit of variety. Um, I, I don't know if it was even that planned. It it, it may have just happened organically, but uh, I'm. It, it is unusual within the Italian industry, which was so much based on churning out product. Mm. If you look at things like the spaghetti westerns, for instance, you know, or the later sort of crime thrillers and police movies. You, you tended to see the same plots time after time. This is, is what makes this such an interesting little batch of films, I think, yeah. the fact that they are so different. People talk about Martino as a craftsman rather than an auteur, but I think maybe the auteurism, maybe his personality, is having this variety of stuff coming from uh, a screenwriter whose obsessions just keep coming out in film after film after film, but he keeps mixing up the... Um, the varying the mix to to uh, you know entrancing effect. Yeah, it it is. It's fascinating that you you get you're getting the same elements and often the same cast members even mm. and the same people behind the scenes. You know, on on these six productions and and yet they are so different. They they pull away from each other. Maybe we'll we'll never know. And that's that's all part of the interest and the intrigue. So Martino started off, uh, Sergio Martino, because there's more than one Martino involved in this. So Sergio started off in 1971 with the strange vice of Mrs. Ward with an H to prevent them being sued <laughs> by, by um, a Mrs. Ward in Italy, I'm assuming. Um, uh, it's always one of those things where it was like when they translate it into English and they keep the Italian spelling of the surname. Why, think, Why have they done that? And it's like, oh, because it was a legal thing. Um, so yeah, so like the strange vice, spoilers, it's sex. Um, that's the strange vice of Mrs. Ward. Yeah, it's not, nothing to do with woodwork, folks. No, sorry to disappoint you. Sadly not, no. Um, and it's basically, it's, it's a string of lovers from her past, the present and future, in, in this case, uh, form the basis of this plot. And it's your typical twisty-turny, jello plot. And then thrown into the mix is a, a killer with black gloves and a, a fetish for razor blades, killing women across the town and... It is thought that she is one of her ex-lovers. There's, there's a quote from Freud at the beginning which says there could be a killer blooming within all of us. And I think he got it about right because it, <laughs> there's points in that plot where at least four different people are trying to kill Fennec with four different but possibly interconnected motivations. Yeah, this this sort of does a, a reverse on the, the psycho cliche, you know, in, in that somebody is set up as the killer early on in the film and then, and then they die off. And uh, and you're you're as a viewer, you're left floundering, thinking what what's coming next, you know, and uh, and what does come next is outrageous because, as you say, there are sort of multiple suspects and um, and lots and lots of uh, strangeness, as as suggested by the title. I think what I like about it is it doesn't have that sort of like mummy issues, childhood trauma element that is is, is often um, the reasoning for the killer's for the killer's motivations in this movie. Um, you know that seems to be a, a trait among Jalo movies. It, it's a really transitional film because towards the late sixties, the leading maker of Jali arguably was Umberto Lenzi, and his films were all about beautiful people shagging each other, swindling each other, killing each other. It was about the misdeeds of the, uh, the international jet set, you know. And, and it was usually inheritance-based. There was some kind of money trickery going on. But um, then along comes Bird with the Crystal Plume and Giorgento's film, which is such a game-changer. And that's all about somebody who's killing because they are sick in the head. They're, they're twisted, there's something wrong with them. And it's very fetishistically, you know, dressed and so on. Um, but... Mrs. Ward, it's a hybrid because the beautiful people are still jet-setting around the world doing dodgy stuff, and there's an element of the twisted psycho killer. So I think the Martino organisation, I always imagine that Luciano was the real guy who made the decisions here, um, was was sort of sitting on the fence about which way it was going to go. And in a lot of these films, you see this tension between the old... Umberto Lenzi way of doing things and uh, Lenzi in many ways was supplanted by um, Martino as the rising star of Giallo 
and uh, he Lenzi had made these films for Luciano Martino. I guess it was uh, cheaper to do things in house and bring in your kid brother as the director, bring in your uh, your bedmate as the star, and so on, and get rid of Carol Baker. But yeah, there's that tension between the um, the two different ways of doing it. The um, the sort of white telephone crew and all the stuff that they're getting up to, and then the uh, the psycho killers, and it becomes more and more as the the cycle goes on. The, the Martino films, it's in torso. It's really about the uh, the twisted psycho killer, you know, and that in itself provides a template for subsequent um, American slasher movie and everything else that came after it. Yeah, you've you've taken the words absolutely out of my yeah. mouth there, John. You know, I, I was going to say precisely the same thing about the film, and uh, um, and where where you, you got directors like Lucio Fulci at the time, who who were making films like Perversion Story, which seems like a, a sort of almost direct imitation of, of the Lenzi films with Carol Baker. And then you've got Martino here, who's actually making a transitional film, not just in his own career, um, because it's his first giallo and the first step in, in this little batch of films that we're talking about, but it's transitional for the whole sort of idea of Italian horror, in that it's taking that Lenzi template and, and kicking it forward, as you say, introducing the sort of razor-wielding psycho elements into that, that plot where we've got, uh, we've got characters of uh, upmarket social standing, they're moneyed, they're the beautiful people. In Lenzi's films, they're menaced by threatening blackmailers and people pushing people off balconies or pushing things off balconies onto people. And suddenly here we, we, we've got, the, we've got the, the psycho horror element being introduced in a big way. And I think that really does sort of shift things for Italian horror. So, yeah, you can still... What, what Martino's saying here, or the, the Martino brothers are saying, because uh, as you say, I'm sure, I'm sure Luciano had a massive sort of influence on, on how these films looked and played. So what, what the Martino family is saying with this film is that, yeah, you... You can have all of that style and you can have the graphic murder that we've started seeing coming in from other corners of uh, the Italian film industry. What happens if we, if we cram those together? What do we get? And what we got was a film that, again, seemed to be influential over the next 10 or 15 years of Italian cinema. Yeah, I mean, I mean if, if it only did one thing, it established Edwige Fenech as the Queen of Jello. At this point, you know, she'd done Five Dollars for an August Moon the previous year, but it was a very small, hidden away role. It wasn't a key, but she became the face of Jello from for the next. She five really years. replaced Carol Baker yeah. as the queen of that, yeah, yeah, and was arguably well never supplanted. No, I mean uh, Edwige for, for listeners who don't know her, you know, uh, look, look her up online. She's she's still around and still looks fabulous. She she is born to to be filmed by a movie camera. Bit of interesting family background, um, which feeds into this. Um, Sergio Martino's grandfather was a guy called Gennaro Righelli, and he was a noted Italian director. He made the first Italian sound picture in 1922 with Sonio D'Amore, Dream of Love. Now, Sergio's father was a banker, so there's these two strands going on in the family, the creativity and the, uh, the business side of it. Um, Luciano, who was uh, the elder brother... He um, really went for the business side of it and became a very rich man. And um, Sergio was a sort of younger, dashing sort of figure, and uh, he was more the creative guy. But uh, who did? Uh, who ended up sharing their bed with Edwige? It was uh, it was Luciano. <laughs> so there's a moral out there for all of us to uh, to draw from. <laughs> it's I mean it's it's. It's a sexy movie, isn't it? This one, <laughs> it's strange. Right? They don't, they don't, they don't like ramp up the the, the sexual content as the, as the period goes on. Yeah. It, they come out of the gates with a very sexy. I mean, like there's there's S and M imagery in there. It's it's there's, there's, it, it goes full on with that kind of stuff. I wonder because it was refused certification when it was submitted to the BBFC in the early seventies. I wonder if they objected to the masochistic stuff or the uh, the straight violence or what have you. Have you? It's a real kind of don't do this kind of thing at home, kids. You know, don't <laughs> roll around having sex in broken glass. It's probably not going to end well. But of course, it's it's all sort of 
I don't know whether you'd call it essential to the plot, but it all sort of fit, it all makes sense that all that stuff's in there by the end of the movie. It's not a film where you go away thinking that any of the sort of sexual imagery has been tacked on or just thrown in to, to you know, grab the, 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 the attention of the raincoat crowd or anything. It, it, it's all there for a purpose. Yeah, it's not, an in, it's not an inconveniently inserted shower scene, is it? No, you know, no. Or anything like that. It all ties into the motivations of the characters. Martino used to shoot additional sex scenes and use them as a bargaining thing with the Italian censors because they would take out stuff that he really, frankly, wasn't bothered about and leave in stuff that he did want in there. And apparently he's quite dismayed when he sees uh, present-day DVDs and Blu-rays because they restore all of the stuff. And some of it he doesn't really regard as being an important part of the, uh, the movie. Well, as, as, as we said, they didn't mess around. They cranked out another one within the same year. I think, I think Vice was early 1971 and Case was like August 71, was released. Um, Case of the Scorpion's Tale. Um, as we've discussed earlier, it, it, it is a, a much more by-the-numbers Jallo movie. It has the sort of like the globe trotting elements that was like, oh, it's setting an exotic European city. Uh, let's do that. So it starts off in London and goes out to Athens. I think one of my favourite stories of, um, of, of of European filmmakers positioning themselves. Oh, we need to get a sexy European city, and the desperate grab, the desperate trying to find to, to distinguish it. We can't do Paris. Paris is already one. We can't do Rome. That's Argento's territory. Uh, and Jorge Grau for Living Dead at the Manchester Morgue came to Manchester, to yeah. his, his modern European city, <laughs> took one look at it and went, I'm not filming in this shit hole, <laughs> and rewrote the entire thing so it takes place in the countryside. In, I think that's a, that's a beautiful Derby. In beautiful yeah. Derby. Very nearby yeah. to where we're actually sitting there. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's, that's a good thing for us, but uh, not so much as a, a comment on what Manchester was in 1975 mm. or whatever it was. He didn't manage to get in the guise with the masks, though. It was a very... Uh, Prescient. Mm. Yeah. So, respect. so this this one uh, this one kicks off in London, but then soon shifts out to uh, sun drenched Athens. I think it's a really interesting film. It. I've, I've, I've just I've just mentioned how um, the previous movie, Mrs. Ward, subverted the psycho trick. Well, Martino then sort of um, reverses that by playing the psycho trick and uh, uh, killing off uh, Ida Galli, playing the character Lisa Baumer early on, uh, after, after spending 20 minutes setting her up as the sort of Janet Lee, the, the style heroine. She's, she's out of the picture, you know, uh, violently slaughtered before we're half an hour in. And we've got no Edwidge Fennec either in this. And he's sorely missed, I think. She is, I think. Anita Strindberg does her best. Um, And then, you know, popped up in a few later Martino titles as well. uh, Strindberg's a lot better in other movies than she is in this. I think so, I think so. So she sort of comes off the subs bench... Um, <laughs> after Ida Galli has been bumped off. but uh, And again, we're into a sort of life insurance plot and the words a million dollars get mentioned mm-hmm. quite a lot as, as in classic Austin Powers style. Have we got an earth-fixed plane blowing up? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that incredible model shot, yeah, yeah. Um, which, you know, you, you, if um, Martino apologists might say, oh, he did that for stylistic reasons, but no, it's, it's shot in his garage somewhere. Yeah. Uh, a big influence yeah, on yeah. Luigi Cotz's career. and three and a half minutes into the film three and a half minutes in we get a shot of a bottle of J&B which I think uh, is something again purists will know exactly what we mean but uh, listeners who are new to the Jallo might need a bit of an explanation of why what J&B is and why it appears in this film and so many other films so uh, John again would, would you like to sort of take over on that well, Justerini and Brooks are the um, manufacturers of whiskey for the uh, for the international jet setters for cool people who are shagging each other and killing each other in jail there's always it, it happens in other films as well crime films horror films there's a really notorious example in um, Bianchi's um, burial ground where the waiter just virtually thrusts a bottle of J&B into your face. Yeah, walks screen. across the room yeah. into the mm-hmm. foreground yeah. and then the, 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 the bottle's right there looming in, into frame. <laughs> if you were a 24-hour party person in Italy during the early 70s, this is what you drank. And uh, the company actually paid to have such outrageous product placement. It's become a byword. It's become a sort of kitschy joke, you know. It's always great fun to see people knocking back the J&B. Yeah. Now, I, I, always have fun, I, like, I, I always feel like if I was going to make a British 
Jello now, I'd have like dandelion and bird <laughs> everywhere. DMB, DMB, DMB for brilliant. <laughs> Superb. Now you you were commenting on how this this film's a little bit of a letdown in that it sort of retreads a, a lot of the. It's a standalone of... Jello. It's, yes, it's it's pretty good. I but... I, I think so. I, th- I think there's a lot to enjoy in uh, in uh, Scorpion's Tale. Um, um, for instance, um, uh, Dario Argento's <laughs> reputation has taken a little bit of a knock among some fans recently. Um, I, I don't agree. I think Argento's the, the, the master of this sort of stuff. But as, as more and more of these films have become available in quality editions, people are starting to see scenes and saying, hang on, didn't Argento do that later on? There's a bit in, in this movie where we see the killer trying to break in through a door and there's, there's a, a brief couple of seconds shot where they, they, they shove a blade through a slot in the door and underneath the door latch. And Argento elaborates on that brilliantly in Suspiria some years later. But you, you saw it here first, folks, in uh, Martino. There's a couple of fantastic shots in the film, I think. I, I love the one where George Hilton, a regular in these films, is being interrogated by the police. And it's all filmed from this weird sideways angle, like the camera's tilted... So the characters are all... It's almost like they're lying backwards on a board or something. And then the camera sort of swings across the uh, the uh, policeman's desk. It's absolutely marvellous. I can't think of anything like it in any other film. And my favourite shot in the film is one where Hilton is on the phone to the police at one point and the, the shot is framed sort of through, a, uh, through an open window... And one side of the frame, the, the, the right quarter of the frame, is a white um, sort of window slat um, with George Hilton on the phone in natural colours, natural skin tones. You can see all his clothes in their natural colours and everything. And then three quarters of the fame, frame is bathed in this gorgeous green light. And it's it's such a fabulous shot. So yeah, if if they are retreading a standard yellow plot here, at least Martino is trying to imbue a bit of style into it, um, and uh, and do something with it. Um, even during the sort of finale, which is rather drawn out and rather basic, we get some lovely shots of the camera sort of snaking through and around um, around these rocks as the, the sea sort of crashes in on the beach. And uh, so I, I think there's some technique being added to this movie, even if it is sort of jalo plot number number 2.1 sort mm. of thing. It, I mean, it does show off his, his underrated talent of, of composing a shot in this movie, which he fully fully expands upon in all the colours of the dark, you know, blending the, the, the psychosexual imagery from from Vice and uh, uh, and then and then the, the visuals that he brought into into the case of Scorpion's Tale as well, mash them together in a in a wonderful outrageous really visual movie in all the colours of the yeah. dark. What do we think about the, the imagery of the killer in the uh, case of Scorpion's Tale? Because it's, it's your traditional black glove killer, but they're sort of dressed in black all over. I'd, Sergio's been watching one or two Mario Barba films, hasn't he? Because uh, we, 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 we get an inference of the, the, the brim hat, brimmed-hatted killer from uh, the faceless killer from uh, Blood and Black Lace. Mm-hmm. But uh, there's, there's a sort of scene where the killer is seen sort of dancing around on rooftops in a rather agile fashion and he's not got the hat on and um, and uh, there's a very, very sort of definite diabolique sort of feel to that as well, I think. So uh, One of Sergio's earliest jobs was being a production manager on The Whip and the Body, Barber's film. Yeah, yeah. And he always says he learned an incredible amount from Barber about economy of shooting, not shooting very much more than you needed to use about uh, fixing problems in the edit, just resourceful coming up with, you know... He was he was very influenced by Barber. And indeed, the sort of the female masochism theme of um, Whip and the Body obviously comes up again in Mrs Ward. Yeah, now, Adam, you were just uh, launching into uh, trying to get us to talk there about... Um, uh, Tutti e colori del bio, uh, T 
to mangle the Italian title, All the Colours of the Dark. Bravo. And uh, to, to re-quote Ian Corns from uh, John's uh, Jallow Pages mag, uh, Ian, Ian mentions the opening scene of that film as a, a truly weird concoction of images. Old hags dressed as clockwork dolls, an immensely pregnant woman, a disemboweled body, and a strange backward trek down a country lane in negative. So that's how, that's how the movie kicks off. And it then gets progressively weirder, I think. <laughs> As, as we've already intimated, it's uh, it's a sort of Rosemary's Baby rip-off, but it's 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 very much also part of that whole sort of satanic witchcrafty thing that seemed to be going on in sort of 1970, 70, 71 and 72 um, in in both fictional movies and a crop of documentaries that were coming out at the time. So um, Ed Weege is back for this one and... Uh, um, we're in London for the whole thing this time as well. Um, interesting use of overhead shots in this one, especially of uh, Kenilworth Court, where a lot of the action is set. And I think Sergio, like Fulci did at the same time with The Lizard in a Woman's Skin, here you've got a foreign director, and Sam Peckinpah, of course, did the same in Cornwall with Straw, Dog, Straw Dogs that same year. We've got foreign directors coming into London and coming into Britain and filming our locations in a rather unique way. So what do we think of uh, Sergio Martino's London in this one? I think it's great. I, I mean, as, as I said before, I, I think this is one of those movies that I come back to most of his movies. And yes, it is very similar. For me, very similar to Lizard of Woman's Skin. The two kind of mm. blur in my mind sometimes, where I'm not mm. quite sure whether that scene is from this movie or that movie. Just, it's just both great movies. Um, and yeah, I mean, as much as we talk about Argento as being the guy, as you said earlier, he, he's not above stealing from other people. And I think there's a few things in this which crop up in Deep Red. You know, the, the, the broken skull, the broken doll imagery in, in this one. I think, that's, I think that's in this one. Um, that he obviously repeats in, in, in yeah. Deep Red. Obviously, it's a great effect. But, um, yeah, we get all kinds of stuff in this. It's, 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 it's like let loose, isn't it, with the hallucinations... The, the black masses, the whole thing. He, he's having a bit of fun, and yeah. that comes across on screen for me. Yeah, I mean, we 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 talked we talked earlier about um, uh, Martino's um, first two Jali, and particularly uh, Mrs. Ward, as as being a very transitional film and taking elements of that Umberto Lenzi style, but bringing this razor wielding killer into the mix as well. He sort of does the same here. What what we've got here is a film that's right on the cusp. Um, we've got the trappings of old horror. We've got witches. We've got the black masses, robes, chants, incantations, satanic symbols, and so on. Uh, but what what he does with all that stuff, which you've not really seen done before, is he transports it into modern day London and makes it very clear that it's this. This is a character where people are travelling on the tube to get to mm. their black masses. <laughs> yeah. You know, they're not they're not going there <laughs> in a coach and horses. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And okay, okay, you can you can say, well, Rosemary's Baby did that, but I don't think Rosemary's Baby quite had. What, what that was missing was the gothic trappings. You know, I think Sergio was introduced that. Rosemary's Baby was great, and then he said, OK, we're going to do a modern-day witchcraft story, and we're going to make our witches look like your next-door neighbour. And Sergio goes out the window with that and says, no, I'm, I'm going to keep them in robes and with the sort of horns and skulls and things on the altars, but outside of that room where all that's going on, it's going to be... London in 1972, and I'm going to make that very evident. I think I think with some of these lower budget movies, you do get that time capsule element that you don't necessarily get with the bigger budget ones that are shot on sound stages and things like that. You get them walking through the streets of London. Mm. You get them establishing where, establishing yeah. where they are because yeah. look, there's Big Ben. We're in London. You, know, <laughs> you get those sort of like shots of the streets that they managed to guerrilla shoot. Uh, as they were doing it, um, and and that really comes across in this movie that that sense of place, which I don't necessarily think. I think with with Rosemary's Baby, I don't. You say it's for people next door. I don't live next door to any of those people in Rosemary's Baby, but I do 
I can't imagine myself living next to some of the people in all the colors yeah. of the dark. You'd like to live next door to Edwidge. Well, yeah, yeah, is yeah. what you're saying. Yeah. Um, in, on, in, in terms of that location thing as well, um, it works as a time capsule mm. specifically in one sense, in that uh, I think at least one of the tube stations that Edwidge sort of passes through on her journey is one of these typical London journeys where I think people who actually live in London would say, that that bit and that bit and that bit don't join up. You know, you can't actually get on a train and go through all those stations. Oh, I mate, think, you want to take the northern line. Yeah, 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 yeah. come on. But I think, I think at least one of these stations, uh, I think Oldwich Station, has now, has now closed down. So, so you're, you're seeing something in use there yes. that, that is, is now a sort of relic. It's a, 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 a ghost station. So, uh, um, so watching that film is interesting from that, from that sort of mm. historical perspective. You know, Londoners that were around at the time we'll we'll be able to sort of point at and say oh that you know i i remember traveling through there you know and uh, and you can't do it anymore i, I think also as a it's a socio-historical kind of time capsule mm. because like full she's lizard in a woman's skin it's revisiting what was swing in london what was the yeah. summer of london and what have you got now you've got um, the sort of um come down from acid you've got Paranoia. You've got the whole scene has turned sour. Yeah, yeah. this is very much the tail end mm. of swinging London. Mm. This is nineteen seventy-one, seventy-two. Yeah, very, very much. Yeah, I mean, it, 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 for me, as I say, it's for me, it's a ride. I enjoy it and I watch it again. I can see why it's not as highly regarded as some of the others. But the next film we go on to is probably the best regarded of his films. Maybe it was for many years. Um, is your vice is a locked room and only I have the key. It's arguably one of the greatest um, Jello titles uh, (laughs) for a start. Um, um, It actually uh, references a line in Mrs. Wood, doesn't mm -hmm. it? Because she slipped a note at some point where somebody makes this comment about her masochism and then it becomes a full-blown film title in its own Mm -hmm. right. Yeah, Yeah, that's amazing. That that should happen more often. When when you see things written on mirrors and so on and notes slipped under doors, you know, people ought to turn those into film titles. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. and in this case, Sergio did and he sort of ripped off himself. Yes, uh, excellent. Ripped off Ernesto Gastaldi or Gastaldi ripped off himself. What's interesting about this film is that uh, in, in terms of Italian horror history, it almost seems that it's a rite of passage that every great Italian horror director had to film Edgar Allan Poe's The Black Cat at some point, or at least call a film The Black Cat. They've all done it. Fulci did it. Argento did it. Luigi Cozzi did it. You know, um, uh, in, in this same year, uh, Sergio Pastore made a great film called Crimes of the Black Cat, which is nothing to do with Edgar Allan Poe, but it gets the black cat into the title. And here we've got this film outrageously called Your Vice is a Locked Room and Only I Have the Key. But guess what, folks? It's a version of Edgar Allan Poe's <laughs> The Black Cat. And there were films that were way, 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 way less um, true to the post story that went out with the title The Black Cat, you know, the Kotsu one in, in particular. But what, what a film it is. I, I think it's my favourite Martino movie. And again, it's got Edwidge Fennec, uh, who, who, who comes in sort of halfway through this one and takes the film over, I think. And she gets to play a bad girl. Yeah, yeah I don't does. like it. I don't like it, I'll be honest. I don't want to see, I don't want to see Fish playing bad girls. And I'm sorry. Ooh, sorry. I'm oh, there with no, it. I, 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 I like her as a lead. I don't me. want to see his bad girls. It works for me. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, but it has all those ingredients, though, by that point. 72, you want, you want in like drunken orgies, yep, tick, we've got that. We've got uh, sensual camera work, um, we've got grisly murders, and of course. Jaded misanthrop in the shape of Luigi Pistilli. Yeah. There you go. Yeah, yeah. You, and, and again, if All the Colours of the Dark was, as I said, a, a film that sort of takes those gothic trappings. And, um, and brings them into the modern day, you know. This, this movie sort of expands on that by really, really combining gothic imagery with the, the, the sort of giallo-style violence. And, and again, it's, an, it's another step forward, I think. It's another step up that ladder for Martino in bringing all of these elements together, but making something new out of out of the combination. And it's more of a chamber piece than the others, isn't yeah, it? Because yeah. they're not jetting off all over the world; they're just in this guy's little domain in his out in, country, in this yeah. in this very elaborate, you know, gorgeous-looking sort of mansion. Yeah, yeah. I suppose the, one of the most famous things about the movie, of course, is the um, the scene towards the end, which. Um, 
Stanley Kubrick fans might be interested to note uh, the revelation that um, a writer who's supposedly been working on typing away a novel has actually been typing the same <laughs> sentence or paragraph over and over and over again. I've um, never seen that before, I think. Now, yeah. so... Um, you know, we, we know Stanley Kubrick had his own private cinema. I, I suspect that a print of this movie might well have winged its way over to Kubrick Mansion. When did King point. write the novel? It was probably after Strange. Um, it was. Yeah. Yes, yeah. it was. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, yeah. yeah. So yeah, if, if if you're looking for more evidence of Martino being an influencer, it's right there. Mm. So no, I, I I love the film and I love the the the, the whole. Um, uh, the business with the, um, the 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 dress is great. The the characters, all all the female characters, get to wear this really elaborate sort of uh, period dress at one point, and that all plays into it. And how the plot of the black cat is worked into it all as well is it's all beautifully sort of uh, uh, sort of knitted together by Gastaldi. And we, um, we keep sort of repeating, don't we, that uh, it's the same old stuff, but it's it's always you know. Well, it's, not, it's not really easy, it it's not really baked. It it's, it's a kaleidoscopic, yeah, 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 yeah. I think it's one of those ones where I'm, I think I'm less fond of it. I think I tend to prefer female leads in my jellos, and obviously this one doesn't, it has a male lead, and I think maybe that's why that's I'm less fond of it. Um, I don't know. Yeah, I think we what we have here is a lot of interesting female characters, but, but not, not in the lead. And as we say, Ed Weege sort of, uh, um, sort of epitomises that by... by coming in halfway through instead of being yeah. on screen right yeah. from the start. They've got to keep us guessing, haven't they? Yeah, yeah. There's there's one absolutely wonderful scene that I, I love. When, when we, we, we showed this film at Quad a few years ago and uh, uh, as part of one of the festivals here, and um, we were right in the middle of Britain coming in or going out of the EU campaign at the time, and uh, there's a, a scene in a pavement cafe that's all nothing to do with the movie. It's just sort of thrown in as a bit of a filler. But characters having a conversation over coffee in a pavement cafe, and this is 1972, and, the, and their conversation is all about the benefits of European integration. <laughs> and it was great watching that here in sort of 2017 or something, you know. And uh, it's, it's not panned out well for us, so uh, maybe we need to go back and learn a few lessons from that, uh, that cafe conversation. Um, but uh, and also, I, I, I love the fact that uh, Martino can actually grind the film to a complete halt at one point, when most most European directors' films grind to a halt, and we're left sort of floundering and wondering what the hell's going on. Here, the plot sort of grinds to a halt, and in, instead of us getting you know five minutes of, of waffle, we cut to five minutes of really exciting motocross, <laughs> and then we we get that, and then suddenly Gastaldi's inspiration kicks in again, and we're we're back to the plot, you know. But uh, if we have to have a five-minute interlude where nothing happens, I'd like to see people riding around in the mud in motor on motorbikes, please. Make mine motocross, yeah. <laughs> um, so uh, again, arguably the most um, well-respected of of, Agen, uh, of Martino's movies. However, Torso came afterwards. Which I remember when I first started watching these movies, late nineties, early two thousands. This was seen as one of the lesser ones. I, yeah, I felt. Yeah. But I think its reputation now has definitely gone through a, a, a reappraisal, whereas the point where now people reference it up at the top end of, of uh, Sergio Martino's run. I think the passage of time has done yeah. that, and, and the fact that it is arguably the most influential film on the American and Canadian slasher movie. Would you would you would you put Bay of Blood in that as well as part of an influential? Bay of Blood is very very influential, but I think Bay, Bay of Blood always gets referenced reference because it influenced one specific film, which is Friday the Thirteenth Part Two. Um, Whereas Torso is the formula, isn't it? Torso is is the absolute template for the hundreds of films that arrived between sort of nineteen seventy eight and eighty five. Um, that's that's the one that everybody was copying, and of course it, it got it got quite a wide American release as well. So I think people did genuinely see it and copy it. And in the states, it double billed with the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, which is in itself incredibly sort of um, indicative of 
how these films were going and, and what the you know what was in the air. Yeah, and, and it's it's known that uh, Quentin Tarantino owns a print of Torso and has played it quite regularly at his his sort of uh, cinema film nights. Eli Roth is a big fan of it, and uh, so you, you've you've got these influential names who know Torso inside out and and love the film and champion it, and. Um, as we're suggesting, it's a fairly basic sort of mask killer slasher movie, but it's, it's, it's not without interest, I think. We're getting into the slashes. We're getting into the have sex and die. We're getting into the stalk and slash. Yeah. yeah. Talking of sex, and, and how, as we were talking about how weird the opening scene of uh, All the Colours of the Dark was earlier on, what about the weird opening scene of this one? Bonkers, um, yeah. Yeah, uh, we've got um, this crazy uh, sort of distorted you can't quite tell what's going on um Photo weird, yeah that sort of turns into a weird and very oddly shot sex scene lots of naked writhing bodies but not not shown in a particularly erotic way um more much more abstract and unfocused and, and soundtrack by a very dry academic lecture that's coming from somewhere else, you know, that we then, we then cut to this, this sort of uh, university hall and, um, and this lecturer delivering uh, this um, uh, scholarly talk. So what, what, a, what an odd way to kick the film off. If this was an influence on the American and Canadian slasher, I don't think they borrowed from that part of the film. The, the, the opening, which is... You know, indicative of some sort of sexual malaise. Certainly, it pays off in the finale where we see the mother of all primal scenes. What motivated the killer? And uh, <laughs> the killer has revealed rants about women being dolls, dolls of flesh and blood. And as there's, there's a, it's a guy falling off a cliff. It's just, it's so over the top. It's, it's priceless. Yeah, of course, we've got the big local connection in this film as well. Uh, Belper girl Susie Kendall. Yeah, if you can't get Fennec. Then you get Susie Kendall, because she's certainly got some iconic genre baggage, hasn't she? Yeah, we never stop championing uh, Susie in, in Derby. And how great is she in this, you know? Arguably, you know, we're talking about this as the, the template for the American slasher movie. Here we've got the template for the final girl. Mm. Yes. I think maybe that's one of the reasons why I'm not a, a bigger fan of it. I mean, I enjoy it. Again, it's not the one that I enjoy in the, in the slasher mode. But what I always enjoy about Jallo movies is that the, the female characters in it tend to be women with jobs, women who actually do something. <laughs> They're not teenagers bored at a camp, you know, just having sex to pass the time. They are career women or they are, they are doing something with their lives. They are grown people. And I always find that way more interesting in these ones. So, so when they jump back to, to them being essentially students... Sexy students. Sexy students, sorry, sorry. Sexy students. Um, it, it kind of was a bit of a disappointment for me as I was watching it first time. Obviously, yeah. that's changed over the years because more ultimately it changed the most when I actually saw it in the cinema with an audience and it does take that audience on the ride. I think at some point they, the audience gives up trying to guess who the killer is uh, because there's just so many red herrings in that first half an hour, 45 minutes. You think, there's no point trying to guess who it is. You might as well just go along for the ride, and as soon as that happens, I think you can fully engage with it. And of course, a lot hangers on the the guy who was obviously the killer and and had a scarf. Was it a red pattern on a black background or a black pattern on a red background? <laughs> There's a lot of angsting about that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Now the, the the set piece scene that I love it's it's during the extended finale with Susie Kendall being pursued by the killer. It's a variation on that old. Um, you're, you're inside a locked room and you, you've got to knock the, the key out of the lock and sort of pull it back through the other side. The, the variation, the little spin on that, I think, is absolutely brilliant. Yeah, that, that is the moment of genius. Yeah. I mean, I literally, when, when, we, when we screened it, I was sat next to a friend of the podcast, Dominic Burns, and he literally just grabbed my arm and went, that is brilliant. Because yeah, yeah. as, as the scene begins and, and you sort of, you see what's happening, your eyes roll and, and your, your mind sort of says, oh no, not this old one again. And then they put the spin on it, yeah. which we won't reveal. And you do just go, yeah, that's fantastic. Mm, yeah, no, that, that's, that's the scene that stands out for me um, more, more than anything, I think. But yeah, as I say, I think it, it has grown in its influence over the years. And now we've seen... 
uh, as one of the top ones, if not the the top one of this run of uh, of Jallo. And it was the last one at the end of a very intense period where 71, 72 and 73 made five Jallo movies, you know. <laughs> so you weren't messing around in this period. Uh, and then the, the sixth Jallo comes along a couple of years later... Uh, dare I say, at the fag end of, uh, of the cello genre, um, 1975, we do get Profundo Rosso, um, the, I guess arguably the final word on, on Jallo at that point, mm-hmm. uh, but we get Sergio Martino's final word on Jallo, which is not a great word on Jallo, I guess. It's an unusual movie um, and is often discounted as a Jallo. Yeah, yeah. Well, again, though, to, to put a positive spin on that, it's yet another film on the cusp it's yet another movie that's trying to marry the past and the future of italian cinema in combining giallo elements with a very broad comedy which doesn't always transfer outside of italy and maybe didn't even play all that well within italy but also with elements of the new breed of police movie that was that was just starting to come through in Italy in the mid 70s and reflecting actual events in Italy at yeah, the time yeah, yeah. so we, we've got the, the Polizio Tesco movie and also as you say John the political and um, and terrorist uh, sort of activity oh that was going on in this... Italy so, uh, so yeah I, I think Suspicious Death of a Minor it's probably the worst of these six films but I think it, it, it fits in in that it does the same as all the others in that it ties together different elements of Italian cinema and it borrows from the past, but it also has an eye on what's coming next. And Martino always seemed very, very good at doing that. Yeah, do you think, do you think in this one, it, it, is it that? Or is it that Sergio's spreading himself so thin at this point that he's falling back on comfort zones in some ways so he can shoot Italian sex comedies in his sleep at this point. He's, he's made a, a handful and of those. Has done, yeah. And has done, yeah. <laughs> and he, he's just been making The Violent Professionals around this period as well, isn't it? So he's moving into the Plitiasecchi type, type of film as well. Is it a case of this one's not quite firing on all cylinders and he just falls back on some of those comfort zones? I think it's... He's, he's got an eye to the way the market is going and probably more importantly, his big brother, you know, financier, mm. producer, um, Luciano, has got an eye to how the market is going and they're trying to judge it and maybe they don't quite get it right. Um, I mean, certainly, I think there are children being trafficked into prostitution or something in this film and yet you get a car chase during which a guy on a cycle uh, is sort of dodging the cars and then he's riding around on a motorcycle <laughs> and it makes... Don't forget the man who spins around on his head twice. Oh, yes. yeah. yeah, yeah. That yeah. happens as well in that sequence. It's so. crazy. And they're going for the comedy. Um, it, it just doesn't really work. And I think in, in all good faith, they try probably tried to make it work. But uh, yeah, it, it doesn't reflect the former glories. It, 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 it's not of a piece with those that I mean, we've been tonally, talking about. I mean, it's all over the place, yeah, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. I mean, I think one of the interesting things was, I mean, a lot of the Jalla movies... Uh, their depictions of the police it, it is well regarded as like they depict them as bungling oafs you know they, they are not capable of, of investigating these crimes so it is the amateur detective that inevitably ends up taking up the baton of trying yeah. to figure out who's interestingly what, what we've got here is uh, Claudio Cassinelli playing playing that type of character but then there's there's the reveal halfway through the movie that he's he is actually in the police force you know yeah. and then and it comes as a big surprise to some of the other characters but yeah although he's in the force they do play very much on that he's he's an outsider he's he's sort of go off, going off and doing his own thing Harry suppose, Callahan sort yeah, of and then, yeah there is an element of that sort of maverick cop thing but there's a, there's a real element of trying to disguise to the audience the fact that he's in in the police as well until until some way into the movie mm. um, I mean he to be fair he for me he's one of the plus points of the film yes he I is I think he's incredibly yeah. charismatic yeah. in this movie more so than like George Hilton I think yeah mm. um, he's definitely you, you feel like you're going on the journey with him uh, he does miss a, a strong female lead um, yeah. the women are all just they're, they're, ciphers they're, to they're, move they're on to the next plot yeah. they're yeah. victims or they're ciphers to move you on to the next bit of the plot I think in his best films um, Martino does have strong female mm. characters and they're missing here yeah yeah, Adam, you were talking about the sort of tone, tonal shifts in this and how none of it fits together and I'd agree with that there is proof that it's actually possible to pull that off 
I love the British TV show The Sweeney, which was a contemporary of, of, of this movie, you know. And I, I think there are certain episodes of The Sweeney that actually managed to pull off all of the elements that Martino's trying to put into this. Gritty action, violence, cynicism, a particular view of the police, and knockabout comedy. I don't think Martino manages <laughs> it here, though. I'm, I'm not even sure the comedy travelled even within Italy, <laughs> never mind outside. I, I think it's tricky to try and make a film that is essentially about the trafficking of young women, underage women and then have comedy sequences in it. It's a tricky one to try and marry the two together. And they try their hardest, but they, they don't. And, I, it, and it's not just a knockabout comedy as well. Some of the deaths in the movie are unexpected for the sake of being unexpected. Mm. And you feel like you didn't... I don't want to spoil the film for people, but a certain character gets killed fairly late on in the movie. Yeah. When you feel like the film's dying down, and it's suddenly... It, it's there for as a plot device to kick the character on again. Yeah. Every half hour, and often at random, and, and almost to sort of punctu- punctuate the movie, we, we get a horror murder. Mm. And they, they don't really fit in, do no. they? No. I think in a career as distinguished as Martino's, we can forgive him the odd misfire, yeah. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I, th- I think it's, it's important to discuss this film along with the other five because it does form part of the, the, the little group. If you want to distance it, we've got, we've got the year's distance between this and, and the, other, the other five films. But um, it is a Martino Giallo, and I think as such it's, a, it's an interesting and important film. It's just not as good as the other five. Absolutely. And just to point out, this is not about suspicious deaths at the minor strikes. <laughs> <laughs> Completely no, different types of minor. It's got an, it's O-R at the end, <laughs> not E-R. Yeah. Yeah. Although, although maybe suspicious death of a member of the NUM might have been a slightly better movie, I don't know. Suspicious BBC newsroom re-editing <laughs> of the Augury of... Uh, Situation, yeah, yeah. yeah. Fi- Filer's potential idea for a future film. Well, um, that's that wraps up our, our run through of uh, Sergio's six Jello movies. He didn't stop there; he carried on making movies for another twenty years or so. But that is a tale for another podcast. Thank you very much again to the BFI and Quad for supporting these podcasts, and we will see you again in a couple of weeks' time. Take care.